Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Starlings Television President Chris Phillip about adapting Korean drama for the global stage and continuing production amidst the pandemic. And Martin Persson, executive producer at Anagram Sweden on the success of innovative SVT police drama The Thin Blue Line. Chris Phillip is president of Starlings Television, part of US drama producer and financier Starlings Entertainment, which he joined two years ago to spearhead its move into series. The firm is behind shows such as the CW sci-fi title Pandora and Archie Punjabi Christopher Plummer starring Canadian drama Departure, plus a string of others, including projects with Nordic Entertainment Group, ZDF Enterprises, Media One and Antenna Group. Philip spoke to Clive Whittingham about these, continuing to produce during the pandemic in countries like Bulgaria and Hungary, why local SVODs are opening up the market, and his most recent deal for a Korean scripted format. Sterling's is a consortium of companies across film and television and other businesses in entertainment production company and a financing company as well, and they usually marry together on projects. We develop, we find appropriate partners in the US and around the world for the individual shows. We have an eye on pulling as much money as we can out of the market to cover production. And we have the ability and the financing capability to gap. About three years old, Kareen Martin, our CEO, has been in the business a long time, investing in significant films and television properties across the last couple of decades. My background is a studio executive for a long time at Universal, starting at Polygram. So I kind of learned how the money sits around the world and where the bones are buried and reverse engineered at a certain point saying, okay, if this is available there, let's try to own the show and have a license fee deal in the US and you know it works and it doesn't work. But the model has been around a long time and it's, I think, a positive model going forward with the changes in the industry. So Starlings invested in Rocketman on the film side, which was a very good investment and several other films that are not within my scope, but quite a successful division. Uh, I came on as a, a partner and launched the television division. And our first show was uh, Departure, which um, thanks to a MIPCOM lunch (laughs) came about. So Departure is uh, Archie Punjabi, Christopher Plummer, and lots of other great cast. Peter Mensah, Chris Holden-Reed, DeGray Scott, Claire Falani. Shaftesbury produced with us in Red Arrow as distributor. And we did the overall deal for the for the gap on the project outside of Canada and placed it on Peacock in the U.S. So it's a Peacock original together with Global in Canada. And Red Arrow has placed it all over the world. So that's a, an example of our successful model of television and where you know we'd like to continue looking for opportunities and these shows that just have great cast. We've helped with cast as well. We help with the creative and the development. At the end of the day, it's the numbers, right? And how do they work when you add it all up? And, and this is a this is a very good project from both creative and business standpoints. We'll talk about how that co-production and also the physical production is going to work moving forwards in COVID times and post-COVID times. But there is some news from you guys. Um, a Korean format trap partnering with Don Lee. That's the hook that has brought us together for this chat today. Why don't you tell us about that project and that deal? Sure. So so Echo Rights, again, at one of the markets, I don't know if it was MIP or MIPCOM, you know, had a brochure. What is this? Fantastic idea. Korean formats are very interesting. They're different and they push the boundaries at times. And this one does that. It's a story of a, a detective who's hunting a bunch of um, 
kind of private club killers and cannibals that are high society. And it's something that really delves into the mind and the psyche of both the detective and the killer. And much like The True Detective and The Sinner and these serialized shows, it has that same kind of formula. And I thought it'd be great to bring on this Korean star who's crossover. He's an American star as well named Don Lee. Uh, Don is going to star in The Eternals, the new Marvel movie. It's the first time a big Korean star, he's known for Train to Busan was his last uh, big movie. And he's done, you know, a hundred different projects in Korea. So he's huge in Asia and he's quite big here and he's in a Marvel movie. So the timing was right. He'll play the detective, but it's marrying a Korean superstar with a Korean format in English language. And that's, I think, the first time that's been done. We also have Jack... Judas, who has written on Sons of Anarchy and uh, Narcos and Walking Dead. Clever mind behind the adaptation. And it's a good package. It's a good team. Again, it's early. We've just put this together and we have the pitch and we're taking it out. But we thought it was story worthy in that there is a Korean format that has a big Korean star for English language with a great showrunner. When you're taking this project and, and other projects out at the moment, what is the situation surrounding producing drama in these COVID times? We laser just toss out this idea that drama will be more challenged than unscripted and will take longer to come back and obviously has huge casts and crew and sounds like a nightmare but you guys are, are progressing with this and other projects can you give us a bit of insight into how that's working and how you're doing that sure so over the last year we had the opportunity to go into production on departure season two and we all figured it out you know obviously there are challenges shooting during covid that was shot in toronto and it's done we did it. And that was actually Christopher Plummer's last project, which is quite sad, but we're very fortunate to have him in his last series. We also uh, were able to shoot a second season of Pandora, which is a CW primetime show that we have. That was shot in Bulgaria, and the COVID protocol there was quite different from anywhere else. Just as effective, but it's just cheaper. And it worked so well, and we delivered on schedule, that we then partnered with Media One on some TV movies, and the first one is called The Admirer, and that stars Rock. Sam McKee, who was in Game of Thrones and Strike Back, and Richard Fleischman, Jack Parr, who's in the new Peaky Blinders season, and Tina Casciani, who's in Pandora. And that project we took to Bulgaria and we shot it as America. And I was on set and I personally had the COVID test every day, deep up my nose and never want to see another swab in my life. But it worked so well that we decided to do that movie. We're going to continue to work with that group. UFO is the company in, in Sofia. And, you know, the, it presents challenges, but it also presents opportunities. If you can find these locations that can offer access to the facilities and open up for entertainment, like Bulgaria did, like Serbia is doing, like Hungary is doing, it's an option. And you have to seriously consider moving productions to locations that will not shut down. I'm, I'm fascinated by how, how you came up with that idea in the first place of moving an American show to, to just go and film in Bulgaria. I mean, when that first gets raised in a meeting, does everybody sort of laugh and then, and then you go into the practicality? of it. I mean, how does that even come up as an option? You no, know, they may have left 15 years ago, but I think, you know, Avi Lerner Studio, which is based in Bulgaria, changed the way they look at Eastern Europe. And, you know, if you walk through there, you feel like you're in ancient Rome and you turn, you're in New York City in the 40s and you turn another direction, you're in Shanghai and they've spent money on the infrastructure. And that suit studio has been used. Now, it's not in the trailer. This film shot in Bulgaria, yeah? but many of the scenes that are spectacular 
spectacular, and we don't know where it's shot, have been shot in Bulgaria. And, you know, UFO, the studio there has, it's a television studio, and they have also a very impressive lot that can be 17 different cities. You dress them up. Our particular show, Pandora, is a sci-fi show. It's a young kind of uh, space exploration series. And the first season starts with kids in the training academy to become Starfleet commanders. And we see how they gel. And they're different planets, different looks, and different ideology, and they all come together with a lot of the problems that we see today. You know, current events are going to always be current, you know? And, and I think when we made that decision, it was, all right, what does the spaceship look like? What can they build? And how can the sets be convincing? And they delivered. And uh, we're doing that. Mark Altman is the showrunner, who is a brilliant guy written on Castle, Librarians, and Tom Vitale, who used to be a former sci-fi executive for, for two decades, now independent producer. These are pros. These are people that, that know sci-fi, and you kind of trust them. Do you think this is going to be the norm for some time moving forwards, filming in, in places like that? Do you, do you just see well, this? You know, we're not, we're not escaping anything to film there, right? It just, we've proven it to be successful. It's been proven successful for us, and we're getting these series picked up by partners, and, and I think there is less emphasis on where we're shooting as long as we can deliver a show, because a studio lot is a studio lot. They happen to have great crews there, and there are fantastic crews in, in a number of those countries I mentioned, but, you know, I was incredibly impressed with our DP on our movie, Admire. I mean, it's just, it looks phenomenal. And you have these people that are looking for work, that are set in their country, and they're available. And um, it's understanding who the right people are and putting it together. That's the only advice I would give, is go deep on the bench and see who's available and who's there and put the best possible team together. And it's not something we're escaping uh, LA or shooting. You know, we, we never really considered making anything here simply because things are less expensive in these territories. They are less expensive, you say, but I, I'm interested to know what sort of added costs and time to your filming schedule COVID is bringing and how that's affecting the budgets of shows and your ability to put budgets together for drama at the moment. Yeah, the COVID budgets were quite different in Toronto than they were in Sofia. And, um, you know, the, the higher budgets in Toronto, we made it work. The cost of COVID really didn't impact our Pandora production at all. The, the protocols. It all depends on the location. You know, again, the, the government is working with the production companies in these countries. So there isn't an obstacle in entry. There isn't an obstacle in testing because we have the facility to test and we do it every day. So, you know, we're looking at doing something in Hungary now, another sci-fi project. We have something that we've announced Alexander the Great together with ZDF Enterprises and G5 Fiction, which Antenna Group in Greece have come on board, an appropriate company for the subject matter. And Greece has made a big push in both the tax credit and the resources and the studio facilities. It's a it's a country that's going to be welcoming a lot of productions over the next decade. Again, their protocol is similar to that for COVID, as in you know Bulgaria and Hungary and Serbia. So the cost really depends on the show and where where we're doing it. But at the end of the day, it gets factored in. You can squeeze a budget here and there, and you can add to it. You know, it's a it's a it's a moving piece, right? We obviously hear a lot about big glossy Netflix shows where they pay a hundred percent of a hundred million pounds for a series or whatever in order to compete with big players like that it seems like this co-production model and more and more players and putting these deals together is going to be the big trend over the over the next few years 10 years probably more what direction of travel do you foresee i mean you're obviously putting these deals together now is it more and more complicated and more and more players to get the budget up to compete with that where where are we heading with it well look the global deals are always a significant piece of business 
it's great to have somebody take the world and pay 100 plus percent of the budget. And I think that will always be a highly coveted order, you know, from one of those global streamers. Now, the projects that we're working on that we've announced, like Sherlock's Daughter, for instance, Media One has a big operation, right? They have production entities that have expanded recently over the last year with their strategic partnerships, and, but they have a distribution machine. They have people that need to be fed, they need product, and it has to go through their deals and they need to continue and sell. So I think, you know, there's a mystery around if something's not available because it's on a global streamer at one go, it means a distributor's not selling it and the buyer is not buying it, right? So it's opened up opportunities for local SVODs that are launching all around the world and they need content. Now, one alone, that's a startup, even if it's a major territory, cannot sustain a budget the level of the global streamers. But I'm finding that they're working together in a very clever way to create a consortium reaching uh, an acquisition level that gets us into production. And it's smart. It means more content being produced, more buyers. And that's really the future. Now, I think we are here not to just let them do that work. We're also facilitating the connectivity, that, that, that connective tissue of good creative ideas with a business model and putting those pieces together as well. So for me, when I look at a project that we're developing, it's of course, is it going to fit one of the top three or global streamers? But also there's an opportunity to piece it together. The old independent model, which I've always worked on in my career, and I've always liked it because there's much more upside should it you know take off and be a hit. But the, you know, the, the project sits in, in two places in my head. Who's the anchor broadcaster? Who's the network? Or who are the three or four networks that can come on? And they may be AVODs, they may be SVODs, they may be traditional terrestrial broadcasters. But the other side is who's the distributor? And these distributors, as I mentioned, are hungry and they're willing to invest in development as well. We are doing that with CDF Enterprises, with Media One, with you know, Leonine, with Viaplay and and, uh, and the Nent Group. And it's smart for them because they get into projects early. It's shared risk and it's coming in early on something that that they know they will have. And I can use that anchor broadcast or anchor partner to bring on more partners. And, um, you know, we did the deal with Media One on the Sherlock's Daughter project because it was literally a conversation. Uh, what do you think of this idea? I think this will sell all over the world. And it was that conversation and we, we locked it in. So, you know, they have a business model. They're not hungry seeing beyond the creativity of, of the show, the creative and the auspices attached. They're hungry and they do want the best possible people. And we are based in LA and we have access to great showrunners and all the agencies and managers, and we know how to package. So it's it's not just about making things at a lower cost. It's, it's cutting a lot of the fat off of the above the line that isn't necessary for the quality and finding locations where there is a different scale of fees, you know, for local production. And on top of that, you have tax credits. So it just makes it much more feasible for this independent model. Do you see that independent model coming into its own more? We presume we hear there's going to be a very challenged economic situation all over the world to follow the pandemic. Do you foresee the market being more buyers, like you say, but less 100% commissions, either because the people that used to do 100% commissions can't afford it anymore. But also, like you said, as these new local SVODs, is that the market we're heading towards more buyers, but fewer 100% commissions? Well, they have viewers that are paying monthly. They expect new content, so they're not going to shut down, right? They need to continue. I think they'll be looking at these independent models in order to secure a steady flow of content, definitely. And these independent SVODs that are not part of a global group are getting very creative with their strategies. So this idea that there'll be a dearth of content for independent distributors because the streamers are just going to 
going to own and commission everything, that's possibly a bit doomsday and, and not true. Not true. <laughs> and are you worried about money becoming available? Like I say, if there is an economic crisis to follow the pandemic, is it going to be harder to put funding together or is that just part of the job? Again, it all comes back to the basic economics of the deal, right? What is the cost of production? Is the soft money stable? Is it going to be there? And how much can you really make this for? And I think it's production's not going to stop. The model just has to adjust. And I, I don't see uh, a slowdown in production in this category of independent. I think it's only going to grow because it's a good way of mitigating risk across multiple territories and partners that need content. Distributors need things to sell. Networks need things to air. And you put it together, you have a happy family. That's not going anywhere. That's only going to amplify. Chris Phillip from Starlings Television speaking with Clive Whittingham. The Thin Blue Line is an innovative police drama set in contemporary multicultural Swedish city Malmo, revolving around six officers and aiming to get under the skin of what their lives are really like. Written by Silla Jakert, produced by Anagram Sweden and distributed by ITV Studios, the 10-part series debuted earlier this year and became a hit for local pubcaster SVT. Anagram exec producer Martin Pearson spoke to Ruth Laws about the show's success, how it's distinctive from other Scandi crime dramas, and what's next for the territory's scripted content. The Thin Blue Line has become a cultural phenomenon which has spawned a podcast and even tours of Malmo. What has been the most unexpected or unusual fan response to the show? Uh, well, uh... Um, I think it's the, the massive uh, sort of support within maybe in all age groups uh, in Sweden. And I also know that this, it's the sa same thing in Norway and Finland as broadcast of the show. Uh, and on social media that people get really involved in the characters and, and are starting to sort of create uh, alternative endings or alternative stories with, with the characters, as well as um, creating a new... Um, title sequence you know or or, or editing videos with just a re relationship of the two main characters love story and, and stuff like that getting very involved in a in a way that i haven't experienced before uh, then you know we've had huge ratings in sweden i think it's the it's the biggest hit for the last five years or maybe even more and that's it's really on the point where everybody's talking about it i can't leave the office without someone coming up to me in the street talking about the, the series which has never happened to me in my 25 years of producing and then there's you know fan groups starting on facebook and and, and clubhouse and so on and Already, I think when we had only broadcasted about five episodes or six, there were uh, fans uh, walking the streets of Malmö, specific tours in the Thimble Line vein. Spontaneous, you know, just let's meet at the Möllevång Square at uh, five on, 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 on Saturday and, and walk the, where Magnus Beat is and so on, which is quite funny. I, I, you know, that, that happens sometimes after a show has been successful for years, but this has just happened so instantaneously. And then, because we also had had um, a big um, successful with uh, the soundtrack because many of the tracks have done really well on on Spotify and have you know millions of listeners already. Some specific tracks and some some you know like the the title sequence uh, music and so on. So there is sort of various um, stages of that response, which is amazing. Uh, there there is um, the biggest Swedish paper in the south of Sweden organized a Facebook group called Let's Talk About Thin Blue Line, which has uh, over. 
over 5,000 uh, uh, members, and they have, after every show, they have a specific their own program where the the journalists of the paper discuss uh, this week's episode and what goes through in very extreme detail about you know what they thought about it and what was going on and the relationships. And this is sort of quite sort of serious, both political criminal and uh, entertainment sort of journalists getting who just sort of usually have an, a much more sort of critical angle onto what they do but here they're just embracing it and talking about you know would you have sex with a police officer would you really have it in a bar like that and yeah getting quite explicit um, that's amazing and why do you think it has been so successful and what is the show's cultural impact i think it's um it's not a normal scandinoir or scandi crime thing in the way that it even though it it's more like a workplace drama within the police or a soap but in different uh, styles so to speak the, because the, it's a mixture of very sort of gritty everyday police work combined with you know a, a very well paced or well thought out love story uh, that really has been getting the audience attention from the first episode and you know are they going to get together how is it going to go uh, so it's a mix of, of different genres in that sense I think but in a, in a package of a, of a crime show and then um, also that the, the writer Sila Yakut is very clever at uh, she has worked a lot with uh, many long running soaps before so she has a clever way of pacing out uh, the characters and um, the different themes of each episode in a sense and she was influenced when she did it of uh, American shows like ER for instance where there's, there's something happening like that uh, new epi- in every episode but you really get very engaged in, in the characters or uh, uh, Use With Blues those old shows that were huge successful but in a Swedish context I think that's the, the key. And as you sort of touched upon, the Thin Blue Line adopts a completely different approach to a typical police drama. Why do you think that's important and what makes it stand out? Um, well, you know, the, the the setting in Malmö, which is um, in many angles a tough and very sort of modern city in the way that that's where most of the, um, I think there are like 160 or 170 nationalities present in Malmö and where most of the different waves of immigrants to Sweden have come. So it's a very diverse population and in a, on a quite a small area which is in many ways quite an integrated city there are no suburbs but everything is right in the middle and uh, it hasn't really been present on any tv series or screen before like that and that we actually shot everything on the street and there is no studio or any any work like that so it's very um i think it feels very authentic in that sense that people the, the audience even though you, if you're from malmo or not feels that this is actually happening there and was there a particular message you wanted to send out through the thin blue line? I think um, from the head writer Silla's point of view, and it's something that I totally agree on, and we've been working with you, it's, it's that message of um, how, you know, people can keep on going uh, and working uh, and trying to deal with the, the, the very problematic life that goes on around these police officers, but still, you know, how it affects them as human beings behind the uniform. So, you know, how can you keep your humanity or as a whole human being uh, when you get exposed to this, this everyday life? It's something that I think most people can relate to. And um, why does the show appeal to an international audience? or why would it appeal to an international audience do you think well i think there are a couple of um, different points or levels there is uh, you know it's um, even though it's set in malmo i think it could be uh, you know could be any small you know mid or large city in the world w- with these that have these sort of um, events happening and that the people that are get involved in that can relate to that and then there is uh, also the the way that it's done it's it's done in a in a you know with a handle camera and 
uh, and quite sort of involved filmmaking. So I think it, it's it's like um, in that respect, I think a, a well produced show that gets involved in a modern way with the the themes and the characters. And then I think also the social media element. You know, that's something that we has been more and more prevalent, and that the police, the characters in the show are active on social media and then it also has a, a physical element when you see it that you see them doing it and then you immediately you get a reaction that you don't know suddenly the air or the environment is full of comments negative and positive and then you know that when the characters go out to the police car they will people will have this attitude towards them because they know what's going on in the social media field so to speak so i think that's um, something that also people can relate to now that's a, it's like a new reality and more broadly scandi dramas have become hugely popular across the world. Can you explain the continuing appeal of this genre? I don't know. Um, I think it, the the Scandinavian attitude or way of life, you know, in one way, obviously, we have always been, for the last many years, been quite well off, but also we have a quite an serious approach to life and, and quite practical. So it's, it's something that you, both stories that have quite a lot of depth to them, uh, but also maybe deals with in, in in a practical and quite realistic sense. There's a bit no bullshit around it. It's just a straight to the point in many ways. And also maybe trying to uh, reflect characters far away from cliches of the characters, I guess. And maybe also a bit of different kind of storytelling that has been fresh to the international eye. And that for there, there is a great pool of talent that for many years was unexposed and that's now sort of thriving. And do you think there's another genre you know for example comedy or anything like that that will become a smash hit for Scandi producers or do you think that the drama genre kind of lives on? Uh, well I'm sure that comedy will be a new I, I don't know if it will be as big as a wave as crime but there is a lot of good comedy in in all the, the different Nordic countries slightly different and I think that you used to be saying that comedy doesn't travel but I think it's not quite true when you see many inter- interesting shows from different countries in that maybe not many mainstream comedy but sort of where you use comedy as a dramatic tool uh, to uh, either for a specific subject that can be touchy or just in general you know way of dealing with general life so I think there is definitely uh, will be many interesting series dealing with comedy in the comedy genre in the near future from Scandinavia. And are there any trends in scripted in the year ahead that you can spot or you're noticing at the moment? I mean to my eye it seems like there is some sort of trend in this um, uh, strive uh, for authenticity. That's something that we worked a lot with on Timber Line, but I also have seen it in other shows. There is a new show coming out now called Snow Angels in Swedish. Uh, there was the Cry Wolf in Denmark, and there are many more examples of it. You know, where, where people want to get really close to reality and dig deeper. There, sort of, that seems to be the trend. And what do you think the pandemic's impact has been on people's viewing habits? Do you think? more people are watching scripted while cinemas are shut for example yeah <clears throat> i mean definitely in sweden the cinema has been shut for quite a long time now and you know um people have stayed much more indoors and i you know you can see it in the figures that people are watching tv and tv series in a much higher extent than before and in also in in uh, a bigger age groups even older people who get using um ipads and tablets and so on to watch stuff or even you know or hook up their tv to uh, vod platforms and desktop platforms so uh, yeah i'm sure it's increasing a lot because of that at least here in sweden for sure and do you think people are wanting to perhaps watch more light-hearted 
started content because of the pandemic? No, not so much? no <clears throat> that's not what I see. I think people have sort of time to get involved in no matter. I mean, I'm sure there are some people who said, you know, I, I'm so fed up with the dire circumstances at the moment. Of, uh, so you, I want something just lighthearted. But I think, you know, even now, um, more serious uh, stories and, and maybe a bit heavier content is also a way of escapism. You know, it's you, you just dive into another pool of content. So I think it, it I think it's something that all genres uh, will benefit from that. I don't think it's just lighthearted drama in that sense. You sort of, you have spend a bit more time in front of the TV or your home entertainment system or whatever you call it. And, you know, uh, sometimes you, you can, I think, you know, the best shows, if you, if you can both laugh and cry, uh, but, uh, you know, certainly quite serious ones, at least from the people that I meet, I see that people get much more engaged in serious than they used to be. Speaking of projects, what's the next project you're working on? We are working on season two of Finger Line. That's keeping me very occupied at the moment. We aim to have that uh, ready at the end of next year. Uh, and then we are working on um, a more action-based TV series for um, via play called The Machinery, where we shot season one and we're also working on season two now. Uh, but then there is actually a comedy or comedy drama series we are doing for SVT called Keep It Together, which we are working, uh, writing and developing and hope to shoot at the end of the year as well. So that's something I look forward to a lot. Is there anything you can tell us about the second season of The Thin Blue Line? Probably not, I imagine, but... <clears throat> I mean, we will we will follow some of the same characters, but there will be some new, quite uh, prolific ones uh, that will uh, enter the lives of the, the main police officers that we've been following. And then some of the bigger things that have happened in the last years will also be prevalent. I can't say to what extent, but still, you know, dealing with what's going on in the world around us when it comes to uh, different political uh, circumstances. It's still in the writing, so I shouldn't say much more about that. Martin Pearson from Anagram Sweden, talking with Ruth Laws. That's all for this episode, but there'll be more from the podcast tomorrow. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 